Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. So before we talk about Palm Sunday, we have to understand a bit more about who Jesus was. To do so, we must travel all the way back to 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asked for a king uh, so that they could be like other nations. Samuel, the prophet, objects to their request, uh, and the Lord tells Samuel that they have rejected him as their king. So they are asking for a king instead of Yahweh, adding to their record of continually turning away from the Lord. So 1 Samuel 8, uh, you don't have to turn there. You can go back there. This might be something fun to study later, specifically as you're talking about Jesus, the son of David. This is kind of the story of David becoming king. But it starts out, uh, Israel's in their land. Yahweh is their king. They have no king like the other nations. Yahweh is their king. And they go to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, hey, all these other nations have kings. We want a king too. And Samuel goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, Samuel, this is, of course, this is the Josh translation. Samuel, this is very accurate with their record so far. They continually turn away from me. So, of course, they're objecting me, Yahweh, being their king. So he says, you know what? I love them. I'm going to give them a king. So, uh, The Lord tells Samuel they've rejected him as king, so they asked for a king instead of Yahweh. Adding to their record, they consistently turned away from the Lord despite all they saw him do for them because, this is why, they couldn't trust the unseen. They continually turned away from the Lord simply out of the fact that they could not trust what they couldn't see in front of them. I mean, they saw... They saw the Red Sea part. They saw all the plagues. They saw him bring them uh, out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness, provide food, manna, um, and quail, provide water when they needed water, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They saw all these amazing miracles, yet still could not trust Yahweh, who was in their midst unseen. Unbelievable, yet very believable. Right? For them and for us, trusting something average yet seen is easier than trusting something perfect yet unseen. Okay, let me say this one more time. Okay? For us and for them and for every generation, it seems very consistent that trusting something that is average yet seen is easier than us trusting something that is perfect with a perfect track record that is the full righteousness of God, yet is unseen. The Lord answers them. Man, there's so many rabbits I could chase right there, but I'm not. Right? I mean, this is a lot of reason we don't believe in healing. You know what I mean? Because you can't just reach, you can't just, I mean, you, you should be able to, but you can't just reach out and hold it in your hand. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. But there's a lot of other things you can hold in your hand. And so a lot of times we put a lot more trust in what we can hold in our hand because we can see it. Even though it can't bring us healing, it can, it can cover up things. It can cover up symptoms. It can cover up, you know, different things. It can't give us healing. However, because we can see it, 
we, we have a lot easier time putting our trust in that than what we cannot see. So, so that's where Israel is, is because they saw the Lord do all these things. We've seen the Lord heal people in our lifetime. I've seen story after story after story of a 100-year-old man who caught coronavirus and was slated for death, prayed over, I think over the phone, and uh, the Lord brought him out of a coma, and he went home the next day completely healed. So, so we've seen this stuff, and yet, though we've seen that, we still have a hard time trusting in what is unseen. So... Remember that. I don't think it's unseen at all, but we're about to figure out why uh, we see that. The Lord answers them and gives them Saul, not to be confused with the New Testament, Saul that was turned into Paul. This is Old Testament. The Lord answers them and gives them Saul as their king. Uh, this turns out negative, as you would expect. The Lord raises up another king, okay? So when Saul fails, the Lord raises up another king, not one after their personal gain, as Saul was. This time, it was one after God's own heart. The Lord said, I want to give you a, my king. He calls David my king. Think about that, right? The Israelites wanted a king for them. That went wrong. So the next time around, he doesn't give them a king for them. He actually gives them a king for him. Unbelievable, okay? Uh, David was the least likely king. He was probably an illegitimate child having the same father as his brothers, but a different mother. And we get this from Psalm 51, 5. Um, In iniquity, I was born. Um, That would be David saying he was born um, in a way that the rest of his legitimate brothers um, were not born. So, so most scholars believe David was an illegitimate child. He was born from a concubine rather than the same mom as the other brothers. Um, however, Yahweh was looking for his king, a king that would be the seed for an ultimate final king. So in 1 Samuel 16, I'm giving you a ton of background. We're going to hit Palm Sunday, but let me just give you a lot of background. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Bethlehem is the house, it means the house of bread. He goes to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. Jesse means God exists or God's gift. So he goes to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. He takes a look at all the sons of Jesse, most of whom look like, the Bible says, they would be a phenomenal king. On the outside, as Samuel sees all these sons of Jesse, he's saying, man, there's definitely a king in here. These guys look legit. Back then, to be king, what you needed to be was was handsome, strong, uh, good at fighting, uh, have a really good stature. It was was all outer things, right? Right? Today, the people that we put on a pedestal, especially in religion, is, is the same type of people. They look great, they sound great, they preach great, right? And I I know a lot of people who do not have a microphone today live streaming in front of however many hundreds of people that are in a place that I would follow them to the ends of the earth. You know what I'm saying? And so I believe what the Lord, the Lord's doing a lot right now, just so you know. Let me be clear. The Lord did not send coronavirus, okay? He didn't send that. I I think everybody's cool with that. Well, I think most people that think are cool with that. Okay, so 
He didn't send it. However, Joseph is where we get this whole idea of he takes what is meant for our harm and uses it for our good. I believe that's Genesis 50. I could be wrong. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's Genesis 50, uh, 20. Uh, but anyway, in the story of Joseph, Joseph is the son the other brothers are jealous of because he is the favorite, okay? They sell him off. He goes into slavery. He gets accused of doing stuff that he didn't do. He gets thrown in prison. While he's in prison, a man promises to bring him up to the king. He forgets. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, look, it's like, if luck were a thing, Joseph had really bad luck. Really bad. You know what I'm saying? Like, just, it seemed like everything went wrong for this dude. Did the Lord send that? No. But the Lord saw the evil going on around him and said, you know what? I'm going to take all that stuff and I'm going to redeem it. Evil does not get the last word. So, Fast forward, he becomes second in command, and now he is providing for his entire family because of his high position. They find out who he is, Joseph, and they start apologizing. Joseph, we're so, man, we should have never done that. And he says, hold up, don't apologize. I'm glad all that happened. Because what the enemy, and this is where we get the verse, because what the enemy meant for my bad God turned around and used it for me to be in this position. In other words, I don't know if I would have ever gotten to this position had it not been the enemy bringing me into something that I wasn't designed for. And so, so here's, what, here's what I want to say. The Lord is doing a lot of stuff right now, not because he sent the coronavirus, but because he always redeems what the enemy meant for bad. So as the world is being toppled right now, the Lord is preparing a foundation that the world will not be able to be toppled again after this. That's why I say, I believe, the, I believe the next great awakening. We've been talking about this for two years. The last great awakening, the last great awakening, the last great awakening. Not because he's going to come back and end it, but because this one will never end. The first two should have never ended. You know what I'm saying? It's illegal to call them awakenings if they end it. It wasn't awakening. It, it was kind of a like blip in a nap. You know when you're asleep at night and you just like wake up every couple of hours just to like, you know, breathe and think about whatever you just dreamed and you go right back to sleep, run, go to the bathroom. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know how we do that, right? That's about what I look at with the great, that's not dishonoring, but the, about the great awakenings. Nobody woke up. They woke up for a few moments then went right back to sleep. How do I know that? Because we're just as lost as we were before the great awakenings. Right? Okay, so some people are real mad about that because we love, I love the great, I think they were awesome. I think they were awesome. I think they failed. I think they were awesome though. Well, Josh, how do you say that? Because they ended. That's not, that's not what the Lord, glory to glory to glory, to, not glory to glory and then a few years later, sorry, try again. That's not, that's not how it works. So th- I, I'm, I am pushing for us to move into the last great awakening because this one will never end. If I have anything to do with it, it won't. And so what he's doing right now is he is allowing the world to get a taste. He's seeing, let me, I don't want to say allowing, that's, that's bad phrasing. He's seeing the world that is getting a taste of what was meant for our bad. So that when light is thrust into darkness, it's going to create an awakening 
that the world could have never fully understood apart from a season of very, very dark times. Y'all with me? So to be clear, he didn't send it, but he is using it. Okay, so with the story of David and then leading up to Jesus, the story of David starts out with David being out in a field watching some sheep and worshiping to the Lord while his brothers are in front of Samuel the prophet, possibly becoming the next king of Israel. David's not even on the radar. So in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse, takes a look at all the sons of Jesse. Most look like they would be phenomenal kings, but the Lord tells Samuel, man judges by what they can see, the outside. Man judges by the outside. There's another way you can say that. Man judges by what they see. But I judge by the heart or what is unseen. The heart is the most vital peace that you have in your body, and yet it is the most unseen. Right? Take away your heart, you're dead. Take away your arm, you're still living. Why? Because you still have your heart. So your heart is unseen, yet it is the most crucial part of your being. Right? So he tells Samuel, man judges by what they can see on the outside. I judge by what only I can see, which is the true reality of their inner world. Remember why they turned to God, or excuse me, remember why they turned away from God in the first place, okay? Just to back up, remember how I started this whole thing? Israel, 1 Samuel 8 says, we want a king. Why did they want a king? Because they didn't trust Yahweh who was unseen, right? They got into this mess because they couldn't trust what was unseen. So Samuel sees all these sons of Jesse who would look like great kings. And he says, hold up, remember how we got in this? I'm not looking for what y'all were looking for. I'm looking for something none of y'all could ever trust. Really huge, okay? This is all gonna tie together when we get to Jesus in a second. All right, so David was so unlikely to be king that Jesse didn't even bring him with the other brothers, What's David doing? He's tending sheep and he's worshiping the Lord. David arrives to Samuel and scripture says he was handsome with beautiful eyes. Go read Song of Songs 4 verse 9 and that will set you into a couple of rabbit trails just in that. All right. David arrives to Samuel and scripture says he was handsome and he had beautiful eyes. Why? Why? Out of all the features would he point out beautiful eyes? I'll just let y'all take that into the secret place. Immediately, Samuel hears the Lord mark him as the anointed one. He says, that's the one, Samuel anoints him, which means David became the anointed one. All right, all this is starting to sound familiar, right? As he was baptized in oil, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him. This David, God's anointed, gave birth to another king. Solomon was the next king, David's son. Shalomah in Hebrew, which is Solomon's name in Hebrew, 
is from the root word shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace. It means peace, completeness, soundness in the body, welfare, health, healed, rest, safe, whole, prosperity, content, a friend, covenant relationship, and perfect. And I didn't even write all the definitions. That's just most of them. Okay, so let me say this one more time. I'm gonna take it slow today because I really don't have a lot. So I I should never say that. That, That's probably a lie. Um, David, God's anointed one, gives birth to another king whose name is Shalom, peace, Solomon. Right? So David's kingship gives birth to one who is in peace, complete, sound in the body, in welfare, healthy, healed, rested, safe, whole, prosperous, content, a friend in covenant relationship, and perfect. There was another son of David that longed to give birth to Shalom for all God's people. A man born of a virgin in Bethlehem, a man full of the Spirit, a man fully God yet fully man, the Word of God made flesh, a man that on the outside looked nothing like the king Israel envisioned. Yet on the inside was, was the very God creator that met Moses in a burning bush set his people free, brought them into the promised land, and made them his covenant family. To the Jesus, excuse me, to not the, to the Jews, this couldn't be their Messiah. To the Jewish culture, this could not be the Messiah. Yet in the grand scheme of how Yahweh operates, Jesus was the exact picture of a God longing for a people who loved and worshipped him in spirit and in truth. In fact, in John 14, 9, and I'm almost done uh, with my reading. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All right, a lot of us read that. Let me, let me stop right here for a second, just for a second. Hindsight is twenty twenty. How many of you heard that? Well, I mean, I can't see if you're raising your hand, but I'm assuming everybody's heard that. Hindsight is twenty twenty. That means on the other side of X, Y, and Z, you have all the information, right? So when this pandemic or whatever is over, we can look back and see where things went wrong, where it came from, how it got trent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. So we have the issue... Of, I gotta stand up. I've been sitting too long. Uh, we have the issue, I don't wanna say it's an issue, but we as Christians have all the information. It's called scripture. So, hindsight, looking back, the whole story of the gospel makes total sense to us because we're looking at it backwards. And I think the reason that the story of Jesus has become so watered down and inaccurate is because we don't take it frontwards as we should. We take it backwards, right? So we see, we know Jesus after three days, three days after dying, he's gonna be resurrected. 
We know what Palm Sunday is going to lead up to. We know what the resurrection is going to lead up to, Acts 2. We know how the whole New, New Testament church started. I mean, we have all this information, all of it. In fact, on top of your scripture, we have Jewish historians like Josephus, Jerome, and others, and early church fathers. We have a plethora of information that we can look back and say, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. However, if you're looking at it from the front, None of it makes sense. Absolutely none of it makes sense. None of them thought the Messiah was going to come and die like he did. None of them. None of them. They all believed that they were waiting for a Messiah who was coming to save them from Rome. They had no context so can you imagine, as I'm about to read, but I just want to say this before I read this next section. Can you imagine as they're watching the one who said he was the Messiah? Because in their head, they think the Messiah is going to save them from Rome. Marching up a hill with a cross on his back as the Romans are killing him. That can't be the Messiah. He's supposed to set us free from Rome. And the Romans are killing him. You know what I'm saying? They had, they had no context for any of this. Remember what got them in trouble, though, from the very beginning, is they were focused on what was seen, and Yahweh, 100% of the time, only cares about what is unseen. Because what is unseen gives birth to a new what is seen or reality. This goes back to last week. If you missed last week, go back and listen to it. But what is unseen births what is seen. So he's not concerned with what is seen because what is seen is just a reality from an inward reality that we've already gone through. He's concerned with reconstructing our inner world so that our inner world will begin to produce a new outer world. Y'all with me? So, in John 14, 9, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said this being fully man. And so ordinary in his appearance that most rejected he could be the Messiah simply out of his normality. Isn't that the carpenter? Isn't that Joseph's son? All throughout, if you read, just read the Gospels. People had a difficult time naming him the Messiah just because he looked like everybody else. Now, he was doing miracles. He was prophetically teaching and speaking because he was fully God. His inner world was fully God. But his outer world was fully man. So on the outside looking in, he doesn't look like some glowing ghost walking around that when you looked at him, you said, oh yeah, that's the son of God. He was just a carpenter. Just like me, so just like me, you're watching me walking around right now, exactly what Jesus would have been walking around, completely normal, and yet contained within him was the word made flesh that dwelt among us. So, so just think, think, so think about this statement. So now think about, if you've seen me, 
you've seen the Father. Hold up. Remember, fully man. What was he teaching when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Jesus, I believe this is N.T. Wright. This might be another theologian, somebody way smarter than me. Jesus was the perfect human. He was fully God. He was fully man. Jesus was the perfect human. Who are humans? Genesis 1, humans are image bearers. Okay? So he designed man in his image. Man, humans are image bearers. Okay? Jesus was the perfect image bearer. Why? Because he was fully God. So he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Something very interesting happens in Acts 2. He sends the same spirit that was in Jesus to live in us. And Jesus says stuff like this. All who believe in me will do the works I do and greater works. So what's he modeling? He's modeling he is the perfect image bearer so that we could be perfect image bearers. So all of us, all of us should be able to legally, and I know I'm gonna get called a heretic for this, but this is just reality, should be able to legally make the statement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I got the same interior world and I got the same exterior world as Jesus. Completely normal on the outside, fully God on the inside. That's what the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit is one third of the Trinity. So God himself lives in you. So, so you can now say, because the fullness of God dwells in you, you can now say, you are fully man and fully God. That's what it means to be joined with Jesus and co-heirs and seated on high with Jesus. That's what that means. It means that you are seated in the same place he is seated. And if you're seated in the same place he is seated, you must have authority that's just like his. That's what that terminology means. Jesus isn't just sitting up chilling. He's not, you know, it's not just like a, man, I, man, I, I just created the world. I just need to rest. That's not what the seat is. The seat is authority, right? He is seated on high. What that means is, is every single thing is under him. So if you're seated with him, every single thing is under you. I've been, this, this thought process of Jesus being fully man, we don't, we don't give that any teaching whatsoever. We, we give that no teaching. Jesus, fully man. The, the intersection between heaven and earth, if you went to you know, the Jewish culture back in the day, especially in the Old Testament, and you said, on earth as it is in heaven, where is that? all of them would have said the temple. Because in the temple, it's where the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, it's where God himself would show up, meet the priests, speak intimately, and then do whatever else needed to be done after that. So the temple was the intersection between heaven and earth. Then John 1, John has the audacity to say, 
the word became flesh. And do you know what the actual word is? And tabernacled among us. Here's the other way that could be said. The word, was, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Pitched his tent, what does that mean? That takes you back to the temple where the spirit of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies where he would meet his people and heaven and earth collided. So Jesus went out and healed sick people and forgave people of their sins and said, take my load, it's easy, my burden is light. He taught, he did all that stuff and he did a lot of it outside of the temple. Why? Because he was teaching them that what used to be available in a temple is now available in a man who bore the image he was intended to bear. Right? So what people used to go into the Holy of Holies to encounter, they should now be able to encounter through you and I. So Jesus became totally ordinary on the outside to teach the totally ordinary, you and I, that with a redeemed inside, of course, I use these speaking figuratively, but just roll with me. With a redeemed inside, they too, you and I, were the image bearers of God. He became totally ordinary man so that he could teach the totally ordinary man that they too could be image bearers as he was. It's better that I go to the Father, is what he said. How is that better? Because where there was one image bearer, there's about to be trillions. You follow me, right? So, I mean, even in this room, in this room, there are more image bearers than there were when Jesus was walking around. So it is better that he goes to the Father because when he went, he sent the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead to live within us so that we could be Jesus everywhere. That's not a cliche kind of line that Christians use. It's become that, unfortunately. But that's reality, You are Jesus everywhere you go. So Palm Sunday today kicks off Holy Week and starts with the king entering Jerusalem on a road laden with palm branches and prayer shawls. Palm branches signify victory over enemies. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew 21 where a crowd is ready to welcome the one who would free them from Rome. All right, so Matthew 21, hopefully you're there by now. That was about 30 minutes to get there. So um, Matthew 21, and I'm gonna start at verse one. Take a drink of water, then I'll start there. And yes, I have a Christmas cup. All right. Matthew 21, verse 1. You can read this in all the other Gospels. I just picked Matthew today. Uh, Matthew 21 says this. Now, as they were approaching Jerusalem, they arrived at the place of the stables near the Mount of Olives. As soon, or excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead saying, as soon as you enter the village, you'll find a donkey Tethered along with her young colt, untie them both and bring them to me. If anyone stops you and asks, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord of all needs them. And he will let you take them. And I mean, that'll do it. 
Like, man, why are y'all taking my donkeys? The Lord of all needs them. Okay, go ahead, you know. <laughs> um, all this happened to fulfill the prophecy. This is Zechariah 9, 9. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king arrives. He's coming to you full of gentleness, sitting on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So the two disciples went on ahead and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and her colt to him and placed their cloaks and prayer shawls on the colt. And Jesus rode on it. Then an exceptionally large crowd gathered and carpeted the road before him with their cloaks and prayer shawls. Others cut down branches from trees and spread to spread in his path. Jesus rode in the center of the procession. Crowds were going before him and crowds coming behind him. And they all shouted, bring the victory, Lord, son of David. It's gonna be, I'm going to go back to that just real huge. He comes with the blessings of being sent from the Lord Yahweh. We celebrate with praises to God in the highest. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people went wild with excitement. The entire city was thrown into an uproar. Some asked, who is this man? And the crowd shouted back, this is Jesus. He's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And then things get real crazy after that. So, but I'm going to stop right there. All right. Let me just point out a couple of things and that's all I got. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than a horse. Back then, and a lot of times even today, depending on where you are in the world, but back then, kings rode on horses, typically with armor and swords. But kings rode on horses because it represented authority and statesmanship and uh, honor and brilliance, you know, they, they, they rode in, you see all these movies from back in the day where kings are riding on horses and they're usually, you know, got these real puffed up chest and these horses are just these big, I'm thinking of Tangled right now because that's, you know, that's all I watch is Disney movies anymore. But Tangled, you know, the horse, is it Max? That type of thing. So kings rode in on horses. The king of kings did not come in on a horse. He came in on a donkey, Immediately, he starts challenging. Now, Zechariah prophesied this, but immediately he starts challenging what they thought was about to happen. Because if you're a king coming to take care of Rome, you're riding into that bad boy on a horse with swords all over you, you probably with an army behind you. But Jesus comes riding in to this giant crowd cheering and chanting and getting excited. And then they look and they see, wait a minute, he's on a donkey. What kind of king is that? Is, is this what we've been waiting 400 years for? A, a donkey? No sense. Unless, unless... What he was coming to do could not be accomplished by a sword. Unless what he was coming to do could only be accomplished by humility and gentleness. Which is exactly what the donkey represented. He wasn't coming in to throw a sword. He was coming in to die. 
What kind of king wins a victory by heading into a place that they know and accept, I'm about to die? Because he wasn't interested in Rome. He was interested in the ones who thought he was coming to free them from Rome. Let me say it like this. I think I have this in my notes later, but let me just go ahead and say this. He wasn't coming to fix Rome. He was coming to fix them. Hello. I think if some people were in here, they probably would have said amen there, but that's okay. Right? He, he wasn't coming to take care of their enemies. He was coming to take care of them. And by taking care of them, their enemies would be taken care of. This is, this is what the Lord does. And we say this, we, we tell people to repeat the prayer. And then before we tell them to repeat the prayer, we give this caveat. I'm just letting you know, things aren't going to get any better. It's going to be difficult. You're probably not going to like this decision you're about to make. You're going to lose your job. You're not going to have any money. But boy, it'll all be worth it. And that's what, that's what we do. Right? And that's, that's not at all what he was teaching. Remember, David gave birth to Shalom. He was coming to give birth to a company of people who were shalom now and forever, right? So he wasn't coming in to just give us a way to heaven. He was actually initiating the grand scheme of transferring what was a reality in the heavenly realm into the earthly realm. So he, he, he did not come so that people could be saved and snatched away. He came to plant the flag of heaven into the ground and start the project of rebuilding and regenerating the earth all the way back to its Genesis 1 good state. And to do that, he couldn't take care of just Rome. To do that, he had to take care of what got the earth sent back into chaos in the first place, sin. Unbelievable. If you'll see the Easter story this week, if you'll see it, not as him rescuing us, but as him reintroducing the original design, it'll completely change how you see this next week. Most people make a mockery of Easter. Well, bro, well, brother, how can you say that? Because this is, this is, this is how Easter is. Okay? Let me just, in America, this is how it is. It might be different other places. I don't know. I can only speak to America. This is how Easter is. Okay? Most people don't go to church, period. But on Easter, they go to church. They'll dress up, buy a new suit, buy new clothes, buy new dresses, wear these crazy hats. I don't even know where that came from. What does it, I, like, you know what I mean? It's like at Easter, all these people just all of a sudden show up these Kentucky Derby hats. Um, you know the funny part about that? When I was growing up, we couldn't wear hats in church unless it was Easter. And then suddenly the rules change and you can wear hats. I, I don't know. But anyway, so, so we buy new suits, we buy new clothes, we get all dressed up, we make sure our kids are dressed to the nines, we show up to church, we sing, we take communion usually, we do the whole thing. And then we go back home, and then the next day, it's right back into the flow of, man, this thing's bad, man. I, sorrow and doom and gloom and all that stuff. That's why I say, you can't legally say that you've celebrated Easter if all you did was dress up and show up to church. That's, that's called making a mockery of it. The only way you can say you celebrated Easter is if you took the invitation of resurrection and said, you know what? 
I got to go through the process of death and resurrection. That is the only way you can legally celebrate Easter. The, the only way you can celebrate it is if you do not see it as a blip on the map that we celebrate as an historical event. That's not what it was. It was not an historical event. It was the initiator of something that should be happening on a daily basis. So I'm not celebrating what happened 2,000 years ago. I'm celebrating what happened today in a new phase of glory to glory, resurrection life. But here's why we do that. Here's why we do that. And I hate coming back to this, but this is, uh, actually, no, I don't. I love it. This is why we do that. Because we think, this is, we think we're getting out of here. Why celebrate Easter? I'm saved. I'm gone. That's really what we think. But if you start to see that maybe he didn't save you so that you could escape, maybe he saved you so that you could be the seed that would become on earth as it is in heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so Jesus riding into Jerusalem is not there to take care of Rome. He's there to bring his kingdom with him. I, I can just sit real quiet on the live stream today. That's okay. So... Man, 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 man. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Sounds familiar? That's a lot of, a lot of what, we, uh, what we know, Hosanna. Um, in fact, we sing that song, Hosanna in the Highest, usually around this time of year. Um, there's, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Here's what Hosanna means. Hosanna means, oh, save. The word save is as in bring the victory, as like in battle, Okay. So, O save, Lord, is what Hosanna means. So, by calling him Son of David and shouting Hosanna, we get a picture of what victory was for them. They were ready for a king like David to defeat their enemy, which was Rome. This Son of David did not come on a horse with a sword, but on a donkey with an image. He didn't come on a horse with a sword. He came on a donkey with an image. He wasn't there to take care of their enemy. He was there to take care of them. They wanted victory without a change of heart. He was making a victory only accessible through a change of heart. Well, let me say that one more time. They wanted victory without a heart change. He came to establish a victory that you could only access on the other side of a heart change. I contend, like I said earlier, that the only way to celebrate it, Easter, in any kingdom legality is to take part in it. In other words, the only way to truly celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord is to go through death and resurrection ourselves called born again. To celebrate apart from any life change is not celebrating, it's trampling on it. He didn't have to go through what he was about to go through. To be clear, he was God and he was perfect. Jesus did not have to go through what he was about to go through. I think we need to grasp this for a second, okay? We, we, because we see it on the backside, we see, of course, Jesus had to do what he was about to do because he was going to save the world from their sins. But on the front side, Jesus did not have to do what he was about to do. He didn't have to die. He shouldn't have died. He's perfect. He's without sin. He's without fault. 
if anybody was worthy of not dying, it was Jesus. Do you understand? Do you understand the magnitude of this? He who was without sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't have to go through it, but he did for us to have a way to get our purpose back. What was our purpose? Image bearers. We, ce- we usually tend to celebrate Easter as if it were for him. You know what I'm saying? We'll, we, everything we do around Easter is all about what he did, which it should be, to be clear. But we make this event about him and what he did for him rather than making it about him and what he did for us. So when we celebrate Easter, I have two thoughts. Number one, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Number two, I dare not live as if you haven't died on the cross for me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that, so I live every single day to make sure, the scripture says, to give him the reward for his suffering. What is the reward for his suffering? Me transformed into the image of the one who suffered on my behalf. Whew. They wanted freedom. They wanted freedom. He was about to put them back in a garden. What garden? The Garden of Eden when Shalom was their only state. They wanted freedom from Rome. He was about to put them back in their garden. How, how, how often do we do this? God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. How often do we make what the Lord wants to do in us or in the earth minute compared to what he actually wants to do? See, they thought it was going to be a grand victory for him to come defeat Rome. He could have defeated Rome with a word. He created Rome, Right? He could have defeated them with a word. He didn't, that's, that's not what he was coming to do. He was coming to transform the cosmos. Right? He's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. They wanted freedom from Rome. He wanted freedom in the cosmos. I'd, I'd say this probably immeasurably more. <clears throat> so God chose David. This is the end of my notes. God chose David and sent Yeshua in a fashion that forced people to see as he saw Here comes our Messiah riding on a donkey to give his image bearers their image back. So this is where the story goes from here. I'm not going to read this. Let me just give you a little little, uh, synopsis, okay? Hopefully you're still watching and still with me. Here's where the story, he rides into Jerusalem. This is what happens next. He flips tables in the temple. He curses the fig tree that has no fruit. He teaches in the temple. He rebukes the religious. He says the kingdom will be taken from them and given to the real believers, most of which were messed up people, by the way. He teaches the greatest command. He tells them to humble themselves and don't be fake for man's approval. He pronounces seven woes against the religious phonies. He prophesies judgment coming. He prophesies the destruction of the temple. He teaches them about what was going to happen to him, and he is anointed by Mary. How many of those had to do with Rome? 
None. Which is exactly why when the choice is given from him and Barabbas, all those who were cheering saying, Hosanna, son of David, bring us the victory. On the other side of them seeing, wait a minute, he ain't going to touch Rome. Now they're saying, you know what? Give us Barabbas. That's not the Messiah. He's letting Rome do this. Do you, do you see the trend? How did they get from cheering, throwing their prayer shawls, throwing palm branches, crowding in around him saying this is the greatest day ever? How did they get from there to crucify him? How? Because he came and encountered them in a way that they were not expecting and to be honest with you, in a way that they really didn't want. Jesus was rejected because he didn't look like what they thought he should look like, ultimately. And so I just want to ask a couple of questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. Daniel, you can go ahead and come up and play a little bit. I want to ask a couple of questions because this is where we, uh, I think this is where we get stuck. And going into Easter week, this is something today that all of us have to answer, these two questions, okay? Number one how are you celebrating? And I say celebrating in the context of what I just taught. How are you celebrating this week? What in you needs to die this week? I, I think, and let me make sure I wrote this. Yeah. I was talking earlier about how uh, we kind of made a mockery of Easter a little bit. And I know that some people are like, man, that's extreme. Maybe it is. I don't know. I just get passionate about it. Maybe it's not. I guess we'll find out one day. But do you know what's not going to happen this Easter? Whether or not we like it and whether or not we agree with it? People dressing up. People bringing their best act and their best song and their best mask. It's not happening this year. People are going to be home. Nobody's going to be dressed up. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not, but you can dress up if you want. But... People, people, nobody's going to be dressing up. Nobody's going to be doing their thing. I mean, I, this might be the first real Easter that we've had in a long time. When I say real, I mean, like church, churches use Easter as the day that they get most of their money, as the day where their numbers can be bumped through the roof so they can post it on Instagram, so that they can get... I won't say trick, but so that they can emotionally charge people to repeat a prayer so that they can say, this, 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 this got saved. That's, that, that's what we do at Easter. It's great marketing. It's on billboards everywhere. Great designs. The one thing that's missing from most, from most Easter celebrations is a group of people who have actually gone through death and resurrection themselves. And just to be clear, the only way you can legal celebrate Easter is, is by going through, and I'm obviously I'm not talking about literally, I'm talking about spiritually, death and resurrection. This is the only legal way you can celebrate this. And so today, a lot of you are at home and you're worried about the virus 
A lot of you are at home and you're worried about what's gonna happen next. You're worried about, as Ellington was saying earlier, your job or the economy or how you're gonna have enough money or how your business is gonna make it or if you're watching this and you go to another, how your church is gonna make it and all this stuff is swirling around. You know what's actually happening? What I'm gonna teach on on a video Friday. This is what's happening. You're being crushed to the point of death. Right? Who, who crushed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What was he crushed by? Was he crushed by God? Or was he crushed by the weight of what he was taking on in the area of sin and death? Just to help, B. Okay? He wasn't crushed by God. God wasn't crushing him. God didn't send it. He was being crushed by something the enemy brought into the picture. He was being crushed to the point of death. That crushing led to a death that led to a resurrection. So let, let me just encourage you today. Some of you, if not all of you, are feel like, whether or not you want to admit it, because of whatever situation, that you might, you're being crushed. Maybe not to the point of death. Some of you may be. But you're being crushed because of just what's flying around us. And let me tell you something. The last time that this happened... The last time this happened, at least in the context of Scripture, it was followed by the introduction of on earth as it is in heaven, resurrection. Do you know what Jesus never dealt with again? Crushing to the point of death. Fully redeemed, not as a ghost, as a man. When Jesus resurrected, his body wasn't still in a tomb and it was just his ghost walking around. It was his physical body that rose from the dead and that is seated at the right hand of the Father. His body wasn't laying around somewhere lifeless. His body resurrected, right? So you resurrected, you resurrected was the design. You're not waiting for death. You're waiting for something in the spirit that you can call co-crucified so that now, today, in the natural, you can be co-resurrected. So how are you celebrating this week? That's number one. Number two, I want to ask this question. This is how I'm going to end. When have you or I rejected him because he didn't look like or do what we wanted? One more time. When have we rejected him or his move of the Spirit because it didn't look like or do what we wanted? That happens, let me tell you, that happens every single day. We think he's gonna show up and look like whatever we've imagined. And a lot of the times he shows up in a way that's much more glorious, but because it doesn't look like what we thought, we'll reject what was actually more glorious than what we ever asked for in the first place. Remember, save us from Rome. And he says, you know what? I'm not gonna take care of Rome. I'm gonna take care of you. And by taking care of you, it's gonna take care of Rome. Rome is not an issue for the Israelites today. And it wasn't because somebody got a sword and said, let's fight. 
It's because a group of people sat in such shalom that Yahweh began to fight their battles on their behalf, not through a sword, but through being seated at his feet, and it began to create an environment of peace around them. So today, the answer to this coronavirus is shalom in you, and shalom in I, and shalom in this country. That's the answer to the virus. But you can only have that on the other side of death and resurrection. David gave birth to Solomon, Shalom. Jesus gave birth to Solomon, Shalom. What poured from his side? Blood and water. What pours from a womb? Blood and water. He was birthing something at the cross. He wasn't just accomplishing something. He was birth. He was starting something. I heard somebody say this the other day. Uh, we need to stop calling this the last days and start actually calling it the first days. It's the last days as in the age we're in. He's not going back to the cross anymore. It's all been accomplished. So when he comes back, he's just reigning. So that's why we're in the last days. It's not because of the number of days. It's because of the identification of the days. But if you're looking at numbers, we're actually in the first days. He started over. Time itself shifted. So, I mean, so what if, what if we're in the first days? What if we're not waiting for escape? What if we're actually the ones that are supposed to be rebuilding the city? This is, this is screaming through my spirit right now. And I, and I hope it's connecting to you guys in a tenth of what it's connecting with me. But I, I've, I've gone through something the past week that was crucial for me. Crucial. And, and I just want to encourage, this week, this week is your opportunity to allow him to finish things in you that you haven't let him finish yet. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.